Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. We are beginning today's show with a very important announcement. Lauren has officially left the 20s. That's right. She is officially in her 30s now. Lauren turned 30 on Saturday. How do you feel about this, Lauren? You know, for like my whole year of being 29, I just told people I was 30 and I thought that would get me prepared. But I don't know. It was it's it's weird. It's weird. You know, uh, I think no matter what age you are, you still feel younger than you are. But I, I just don't I don't feel 30. Like I, I, I still feel like I'm like right out of college, you know, has it hit you at all that you're like, oh, wow, like I'm not necessarily old, but like a feeling of like, oh, man, like. Yeah. I'm moving up. Yeah, I mean, I'm like an adult and I'm not new <laughs> in my career. Like I'm I'm established. And so I had a really awesome birthday. I was down in Florida with my family and my parents only live about an hour away from Disney. So we went to Epcot and uh, we drank around the world. It's their uh, holiday food and wine festival. So yeah, we just got like a little snack and a little drink in every country. And my niece is nine and a half months old. So it was her first trip to Disney. And I, I don't know, I, I had a friend tell me yesterday that if I turned 30 up in DC, like any normal year, I'd probably have a big party or, or go to a bar and it would be really fun. But, you know, those people wouldn't be in my life forever, but my family will be in my life forever. And just to be surrounded by them and celebrated by them was, was really special. That's such a good perspective. And that, I mean, I I don't think I could come up with a better way to celebrate. Like you're yeah. at Disney with your family and yeah. having this unique experience, making memories. That's really cool. Well, I'm, Lauren. You even got me a crown, Virginia. Wow. Living yeah. it up. Yeah. I'm... <laughs> oh, well, happy belated birthday, Lauren. So fun. Cheers to many, many more. But what do we have up on today's show? Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk with Daily Signal contributor Nicole Russell about her latest piece discussing the UK's decision to outlaw the prescription of puberty-blocking drugs to youth under the age of 16 and why the U.S. should follow suit. Plus, Dr. Kevin Pham, a visiting policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation, joins us to explain how we can safely date during COVID. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. I do want to give our audience just a quick heads up that some of the content of the following interview is sensitive uh, and may not be appropriate to children. So you may want to skip ahead and come back and listen to this interview later if you are currently with young children. I am joined by Nicole Russell, a journalist and a contributor at The Daily Signal. Nicole, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
So one of the issues that we try to really consistently cover on this show is the transgender movement and specifically how that movement affects children and women. Nicole, as a journalist, you cover this issue pretty extensively. Of course, over the past several years, we have seen a a really major spike in individuals and particularly young women coming out as transgender taking hormones, puberty blockers, and even in some instances having those physically altering surgeries. You recently wrote a piece uh, for the Daily Signal titled UK Issues Landmark Ruling Protecting Kids from Life-Altering Hormone Replacement Therapy. Can you explain this lawsuit in, in the UK that you wrote about and what that landmark ruling was? Absolutely. So in the UK, there is a gender clinic uh, called the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust. Um, they're the only, you know, clinic in the UK that uh, facilitates um, transitions. Uh, I guess you could call them to another gender. And uh, there was a young woman named Kira Bell who uh, went to the clinic when she was about sixteen. She told them that she wanted to transition to male, and they helped her uh, start that process. So she did a uh, some hormonal replacement therapy, uh, where she started taking, um, you know, cross hormones. She started taking testosterone, and I believe she also had a mastectomy, um, and so she could begin, you know, this this quote unquote. Um, medical transition toward male. And then she learned, you know, over time, she decided she did not want to be a male. She did not want to live that way. And she regretted the transition that she had done. She She regretted the changes she'd made through puberty blockers and um, hormones and through surgery. And so she actually sued this gender clinic and the case eventually, uh, as cases do here, you know, worked its way up to their high court. And the high court found last week um, that what the gender clinic had done in facilitating her transition was wrong. And they basically ruled that going forward, this clinic cannot help children under the age of 16 do transitions like this anymore because uh, they found, they they used her testimony, they they reviewed her testimony and basically came to the decision that children under 16 cannot understand the ramifications of taking testosterone or, or estrogen or puberty blockers or anything else. And so they don't know what they're doing to their bodies they don't understand that these um, choices are, in most cases, uh, life-altering and unable to be reversed. And so they decided um, to basically, you know, ban them or ban the clinic from being able to do them. And so now um, she she said about the ruling, and I wrote this in my piece, that she was very pleased with their decision, uh, and she feels like it will help. Uh, young people as they kind of navigate these waters. So I think as far as it relates to the United States, you know, the UK has always been slightly ahead of us uh, in terms of the culture war, in terms of of the transgender issue. 
they've been very sort of welcoming to the concept of people transitioning. And so I think this is a huge uh, step toward protecting children from making decisions that would alter their bodily chemistry for life. Yeah, I, it, it's definitely uh, incredible to see the UK make this decision. And I, I really hope that the US is paying attention because in some states in America, kids can start receiving these drugs without parental consent as young as 15, even 13 years old. They can begin taking these drugs that will literally alter their body uh, potentially for forever, uh, do irreversible damage. Yes. It's been really frustrating to observe, you know, the transgender movement as a whole first began, I think, just as a frustration, maybe among adults, and you watched adults transition slowly. And I think now it's really has moved to teenagers. And it has become, as Abigail Schreier talks about in her book, kind of a contagion. You know, it's really spread almost as like the cool thing to do. And so teenagers are making these choices. And doctors are often, you know, letting them make decisions to change their bodily chemistry in a way that can't be undone. Uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of, of detransitioners out there. In fact, there was a piece um, in a London newspaper a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago, about detransitioners um, who have decided you know, we tried to transition and we realized it was a mistake. And now they're kind of, their body is somewhere between male and female. And so I think in the United States, it's definitely something we want to look for. I know there's been legislation um, put forth to try to, you know, put caps on, on at least these age ranges so that we can, you know, protect uh, minors from, doing something they will regret uh, because we've often we've found as we've researched this and as time has gone on that often um, teenagers if they receive therapy and if they just uh, don't do any of the transitioning uh, the medical transitions that they often sort of come out of this phase and they realize like in their 20s okay they don't want to live like that anymore that's what we want to try to prevent here in the U.S., and I hope that we can look at the U.K. as an example and, and hold firm on this issue. I think that that's what made Kara Bell's testimony so incredibly powerful is she raised that. She said, you know, I, I just wish that, you know, doctors, people around me would have pushed me a little bit more of like, okay, why do you actually want to take those steps? But she brought up that one of the things that really motivated her to keep going down this path of, of transitioning was encouragement that she received from the internet. Yes. Uh, and you mentioned Abigail Schreier. We had her on this podcast back in July. She authored the book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze, Seducing Our Daughters. And Abigail spoke about the power of social media in this issue that you know, when a teenage girl who already feels awkward and uncomfortable, when she's celebrated on social media for coming out as trans, you know, you get that feeling of affirmation that you've been looking for for so long, and it keeps you walking down this path. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that is a really powerful connection. Um, and I think it's, you know, in terms of, of parenting, something that that all parents of teenagers and especially teenage girls uh, need to just keep an eye on is who are they talking to? You know, what are they doing online? I know there's Reddit threads that are just this sort of vortex of the transgender craze. It has gone from an issue that was um, maybe sort of awkward and unspeakable to very hip and very cool. And and I think it is kind of sucking in a portion of the generation that, like you said, is already a little bit awkward or maybe girls that don't fit in. And so I think it is something to for parents to consider, you know, working through that in therapy, but not necessarily going as far as the actual transitions. And it seems like, I think the, I think the real problem is it feels like, you know, doctors or even just parents should be aware of that and they should know that. But for some reason on this issue, everybody tends to give in. There are few people in the medical industry that are willing to hold the line and say, you know, look, if your arm was hurting, you wouldn't chop it off. But when when a teenage girl comes to a doctor and says, I just feel like I want to be a boy, they're like, okay, you know, let's do a mastectomy. It's so extreme and it's so dramatic. And I can really pin it back to this whole concept of, of kind of this craze being accepted societally and with the progressive media and with Hollywood. And it's made it really difficult to combat. It's really disturbing that, like you say, you know, on so many other issues, feels like we can have a reasonable conversation, like two sides can present, you can look at the medical facts, you can look at the science, but specifically on the transgender issue, it really feels like logic got thrown out. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a natural pendulum swing, where like you say, it used to sort of be this taboo issue, and now we've swung all the way to the other side to where, if, you know, if you speak out, and if you speak against someone that has come out as transgender, you know, and if you question them right away, you're shut down, you're called a bigot. Uh, <laughs> and it, it is just a little bit crazy of how, how did we get to this place so quickly where professionals are willing to ignore science Essentially, it seems like because of social pressure. I think the way this happened is a lot due to Hollywood's influence. Um, Hollywood has always led the way kind of in tandem with a lot of the mainstream media in terms of progressive issues and the LGBT uh, movement in general. And so I think you've seen a lot of Hollywood stars, you know, come out. First it was gay and then gay marriage. And now we are, you know, doing the transgender craze as well. I think they've really led the way and it's, it's, they've normalized something that typically, and you alluded to this in medical circles would be, um, would be questioned. And I think that their influence has played a significant role. You recently wrote uh, a great piece for the post-millennial discussing uh, actress Ellen Page, who now uh, has been asked to be called Elliot Page. She's changing her name. Uh, And Page, born a woman, biologically a woman, but now says she identifies as a man. 
Uh, and it, it really took, you know, IMDb, Wikipedia, a whole slew of media outlets, no time at all to get right in lockstep and begin referring to Page as he. Uh, what do you think this says about the media? I mean, obviously, Page is a, a grown adult, can make decisions as, as, you know, she sees fit, but I think it's it's one thing for an individual to, you know, personally say, okay, now I identify as a man. My name is Elliot. It's a whole other thing for you know society to turn on a dime and say, oh, yep, that's the truth. Absolutely, I think you nailed it. I think the real issue with transgender adults is is exactly what we saw happen with Paige. Paige has lived for thirty three years, not only as a female. But um, she came out, I, th- I believe it was 2014, as lesbian. She is married to another woman. And when she made this decision last week and announced on her social media that she was now going to be a transgender, she was now going to be addressed as a he and a they were uh, Paige's new preferred pronouns. And like you said, changed her name. And so we had immediately all, uh, you know, there was not one person, I think probably outside of the center right media that, that stopped for a minute and said, now, now just wait a minute. How, how is it possible that you can just decide one day or perhaps for Paige, it was a, it was a period of time, but according to, you know, her announcement, it was like you said, kind of on a dime. Um, how is it that you can go from living as a female and being uh, being a lesbian, married to a female, and now you're changing to male? And I think the problem with with doing that and with this with the media kind of just almost coming to her rescue and deciding, okay, we're going to use um, different pronouns, is this concept of compelling other people to use a specific type of speech that is typically used, um, you know, accurately. And when, and when describing real things, what you have happening here is a real collective attempt to gaslight um, your average American person into buying into this concept that if one day you decide to be to go from female to male, everyone should just join in and everyone must refer to you as whatever thing you've chosen. And I think it's just it's so dangerous to fall into this or to walk alongside of uh, the media and someone like Paige who um, you know, clearly I think should be treated with respect and with dignity. You know, she's a human being like anyone else. But to buy into the lie um, that you can change your biological reality is is really a slippery slope. It's it's like I said earlier, it's, it's really not done anywhere else. Um, you know, if a five-year-old said, I want to be an Avenger, I am an Avenger and now you must call me, you, you know, you would laugh and go like, okay, sure. But you're also a little boy. Um, if someone said, you know, I'm a 30 year old woman and now I identify as a dolphin. I mean, you would laugh because it's just not possible. And yet when it comes to this, 
when uh, a movie star says, I'm, I've been a woman my whole life. I love women. I'm married to a woman and now I'm going to be a man. Everyone goes, Oh, okay. No problem. It really defies logic. And it's, you're asking the collective public to engage um, in this deceptive, you know, use of language and and I think it's it's really a dangerous path to walk down. And where where does this path take us? I mean, ultimately, if at some point uh, common sense, science, truth doesn't get put back into this debate and discussion, where do we end up if we just keep walking down this road? Well, I think for starters, you start erasing women. Um, I've noticed this for the last couple of years as the transgender movement's really picked up uh, in the media that um, transgender, you know, males, males living as women, um, using women's bathrooms. So you have women put at risk. Um, this is something J.K. Rowling, you know, talked about over the summer and really got excoriated for. And she was clearly, you know, not acting out of any sort of bigotry, but actual concern for women and children. So I think you'll have this kind of gradual erasure of women. Um, and I think that would be, a, you know, a sad, a sad thing to see. And I think you'll also, you're also having this, this constant kind of gender swapping, you know, and so you're, you're removing the uniqueness of men and the uniqueness of women um, their, their gender, you know, stereotypes. And you're saying, you know, no, they're, they're, we're not unique at all. We can totally swap. And it's no big deal because there's nothing special about men. There's nothing special about women. And so it's okay to just, um, switch back and forth. And so I think you're going to see a gradual decline in just the, the celebration of of the of the things men bring to the table and the things women bring to the table, um, and I think you're also going to see even just maybe um, a moral decline in terms of um, people justifying all kinds of behaviors, um, you know, sexual behaviors because hey, if you can go from male to female, why can't you do other things, um, you know, in terms of of gender swapping or your sexual relationships, I think you're going to see people going down that path because we haven't held the line um, where it is. And I think it's just an unfortunate thing to observe and particularly this celebration. Um, there wasn't there wasn't one person when this happened last week that said, um, hold on a minute, that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and, when, and like you, you pointed out earlier, when you do say that, um, I know on YouTube, if you if you start referring to a transgender person, you know, by their former name or their former gender, um, you you can risk being banned. You can risk being demonetized because of quote unquote dead naming. And so they've really, you know, society kind of progressive parts of society have really banded together and kind of circled the wagons around these really harmful progressive concepts um, and, and acted like they're normal when, when they're actually really abnormal and they're harmful, they're erasing women and they're kind of mixing up things that really should be um, separated and celebrated. 
Yeah. So I guess that then kind of raises the question of like, whose responsibility is it to kind of, I guess, bring people back to earth on this issue to bring some common sense back to this discussion? Uh, and I mean, I, I guess that's in some ways, it it's all of our responsibility, whether, you know, it's in conversations just with friends, or obviously, we would love to see the medical community really step up on this issue. Uh, and really speak some truth here, uh, like we saw in the UK, you know, to see rulings at a judicial level that hold fast to truth, hold fast to science. But what do you, what do you think, Nicole? Who, who yeah, that's a really, <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. I do really wish, um, the medical community would, um, would just observe what they've seen as professionals. And really, um, just gather up their own courage and, and, and start to just, um, be the voice of reason because I do think, um, some people would listen to that. I know that's one of the things, um, you know, that's the way, the reason Jordan Peterson really skyrocketed to fame, um, here was because of, of his stance on, um, compelled speech as it related to this issue in Canada. Um, I think he was kind of, you know, one of the first people to see this coming in a modern sense and to, and to kind of go, you know, it's a, if you want to call yourself that, like, okay, that's fine, but making other people do it is an issue. Um, and so I think, you know, he did shed some, some positive light, you know, but I think people have kind of maybe even forgotten that as he, as he kind of became famous. I think even, um, you know, as we mentioned, Abigail Schreier's, you know, she she came to write that book um, just as a journalist, just noticing, you know, that kids were struggling and their parents uh, were struggling with how to handle it. I think, you know, one of the good things about her, not only did she write the book, but then the book has gotten backlash. The book has gotten censored. It's gotten banned. You know, if parents try to put a billboard up, of the book, you know, that gets taken down. And so I think, I'm hoping that when people see, okay, someone's trying to speak some truth, someone's trying to kind of wave the flag of, you know, let's look at reality again and common sense and, and logic. Um, and, and, and people are panicking and pushing back against it, you know, that that means something. It means that we're on to something and that, um, the common sense crowd or, or just the science crowd, you know, really shouldn't be ignored. So I do think, um, you know, kind of bringing it back to your average person. Um, if you're a parent, um, it's, it is important to kind of ask your kids, you know, what are they learning? I always ask my kids what they're learning is specifically in subjects that are really subjective um, and where this kind of thing can be snuck in. Um, so like English, science, history, those are subjects that um, if you happen to live in a really, um, you know, liberal area or sort of progressive part of the country, um, teachers could easily sneak in, you know, books and, and textbooks and movies that, that kind of touch on this and make it make it normal, make it feel like it's normalized. And so I think as parents um, and just observers, those are the types of things you should be talking about with your kids. I think calling it out where you see it 
you know, it's just that that's another way because we can't all do legislation. We can't all write articles. You know, not everyone is in the public arena, but I think even just kind of holding your own in your own family and among your friends and having the courage to point out things that seem illogical and things that seem countercultural is um, I think even all those little steps are helpful. No, that's such a good point. I, I find that you know, it's so helpful to just when you find yourself in those discussions, just to like ask questions, like just get people thinking like, wait a second, like how, how does this logic follow? So that's- yeah, you know, even if I can add, um, I guess I wrote about this for the Daily Signal a few weeks ago. Um, my daughters watched um, Netflix made a um, babysitter's club um, series based on the old books. And I loved those books as a kid. And, and so they started watching them. And we noticed in, in an episode about halfway through the series that they completely snuck in um, a whole, the whole um, episode was about a, the, one of the babysitters watching a transgender kid. And so they went through the whole thing in fiction about this little kid deciding to go from I can't even remember, boy to girl or whatever. And the babysitter was super cool and hip and progressive about it and was totally accepting. And so we all watched this, uh, my daughters and I, and then and then we talked about it. And I didn't want to shield them from it because it was material at their age, at their level. But I wanted them to see it. And then I was right there to kind of say, okay, what do we, what do we think about this? Can this really happen? And what do you think? And then I kind of taught them, you know, what I think. And tried to use it as a, you know, a sort of teachable moment um, so that they weren't completely, um, you know, getting the issue and then left in the dark to, to, to feel around. And nor did I just, I mean, you could shield your kids depending on their age, but I did want them to see like this is out there and they are targeting kids. Uh, much of the media is targeting young kids that, you know, don't have the capacity often on their own to think through this because kids are gullible and naive. And I think they're kind of counting on that. And so I think, you know, like you said, asking the questions and kind of pointing some seeds of logic and doubt in their minds uh, is a, is another way to do it. So important. Nicole, we really just appreciate your insight on this issue. How can our listeners follow your work? I write, as you said, for the Daily Signal, I write for the Washington Examiner. I'm on Twitter uh, at Russell underscore NM. You can follow all of my random insights <laughs> there. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, Nicole, thank you. Up next, we talk with Dr. Kevin Pham about how, and even if we can, date safely this winter as COVID-19 cases continue to rise. But first, I want to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts called Heritage Explains. You know, the news can frankly be a little dense and even confusing at times. And that is why I love the Heritage Explains podcast. Hosts Michelle Cordero and Tim Desser take big policy issues and debates, and they break those down at a one-on-one level using stories, clips, and interviews. I always learn so much when I listen to Heritage Explains. So be sure to check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.
Getting together with friends that you know is hard enough during COVID. So meeting new people, it's a whole other level of complication, which of course makes dating really difficult. But it's Christmas time, and come on, I mean, between the lights and the Hallmark movies, it just kind of makes everybody want to go on some dates, I think. I mean, at least one or two. Well, that- isn't it, isn't it called <laughs> cuffing season is the uh, scientific term for it. Does it have an actual name? I thought that's what cuffing season was, like when oh, it gets gosh. colder, people want to eat a little more, maybe not be as fit. Yeah, it's cuffing season. Then, you, you know, you find a boyfriend, you find a girlfriend. I've been living in the dark my whole life. I had no idea there was a term for this emotion and feeling that comes out every December. <laughs> I feel so enlightened, Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> but that, I mean, the question does still remain, how, you know, how do we, how even can we safely date during COVID? So here to help us answer that question is Dr. Kevin Pham, a visiting policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation and a frequent guest on the Daily Signal podcast. Dr. Pham, welcome to Problematic Women. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you should feel pretty special because, Lauren, I think that Kevin is only the third male to come on the show. Is that right? Yeah. I I mean, we had Ian Uh huh. and we had Philip. Yeah. Is that it? And I then think that's now it. Kevin? Wow. Yeah. Well, welcome, Kevin. That's exciting. And for the, all those wondering, uh, Kevin is a medical doctor, uh, Dr. Pham, but he prefers to be called Kevin. So that's why we are going to call him Kevin today. There's no disrespect there. Yeah. So COVID cases, they are sadly at an all-time high right now. Cases are really surging across the country. We've had over 14.6 million cases in the U.S. since March. That's according to the CDC. So dating apps (laughs) during COVID, they've been used uh, at pretty much an all-time high. Lots of people are using Hinge, Tinder to get to know people, to build those relationships. But eventually, you actually need to meet someone in person if you're going to have a relationship with them. So then the question becomes, how do you do that safely? Kevin, give us your insight. How how can we go on dates safely? How can we move beyond the just texting? The truth is, all of the, all of the regular considerations that you're going to have for any stranger, you know, it's going to carry over, excuse me, it's going to carry over to your dating life as well. When we are with um, people that we're close with, we don't wear a mask and we do uh, spend time with each other with, there are some people in our lives with whom we spend our time. And that's, that's sort of the transition that, uh, that a person that you're meeting on, you know, Hinge or Tinder or even Outlook, for instance, (laughs) Um, funny story there. Yeah, it's just somebody else, someone that you're considering dating is at some point going to need to make the jump from the stranger pool of people to the close uh, group of people that you keep around you. But, you know, I, th- I think the first thing that we should address is that you should not stop dating. You know, I think that's probably the most important thing to keep in mind because uh, it is one of those things that make us human. And during this uh, pandemic time, we're stripped of so much, uh, so much human interaction with one another, that it's easy to set this aside. And it really strips us of like of who we are and it detaches us uh, from this, uh, the community that we're normally that we normally feel part of. So it's it's really important to just to keep on dating. Uh, and especially if you're, a, if you're of a lower, um, lower risk group, like I am, like most of us are, then, 
you know, it's okay to let down your guard a little bit and, and let somebody in. Uh, normally that, that deals with like personal emotional, um, uh, emotional integrity, but this, this time has to do with like a actual biological threat. But, you know, that being the case, we do know who is at the most risk and who is at less risk. So, you know, if you're, if you're trying to meet somebody special, it would be worth it to let that, let that guard down just a little bit. Uh, of course, there can be some precautions that you have to take. So, Kevin, what are the effects that this isolation has had on folks during lockdowns, not going out and meeting people? It's been a tremendous strain on the mental health of Americans and probably people all over the world as well. During this time, it's not just being isolated from one another, even though we have we have been largely isolated for several months on end, and, it's just, and we're just not designed to do that. But the other in my opinion, more pernicious effect that the COVID uh, response has taken is that we've started to learn to fear strangers. When we tell everyone to wear a mask, it's because we don't know who is infected and who can possibly transmit the virus. If you expect other people to wear masks, you're assuming that they may be infected. And that that sort of baseline assumption that that person could be a threat to myself or to my family, you know, that's, that's really instilling a... Um, sense of fear of strangers that's not going to be healthy for for us moving on and hopefully we don't have to do this very much longer because uh because this can have really huge ramifications for uh for mental health in america and um and loneliness yeah i was uh just talking with someone the other day and they were talking about how when they walk their dog in their neighborhood you know, a lot of people won't even really look them in the eye that there is just uh, sort of this cultural <laughs> shift that we've seen a little bit where some people have just become pretty standoffish. Um, and like you say, Kevin, like I, I hope that that does not remain. And once we kind of fully get past the virus, we're able to, again, kind of shift back to it's okay to smile and, and wave and really greet people. And even now it's okay, of course, to be doing those things, um, even though we have to take some precautions. Uh, I want to ask you just sort of practically, what what should we expect, I guess, dating during a pandemic? Uh, bef- before we started the show, we we were just chatting about how dating is always a little bit uh, of a bizarre kind of feat we undertake as humans. But during a pandemic, it's especially a little bit strange. One of the pitfalls I've seen among my friends is that they're trying to take the normal dating paradigm and then shoehorn that into a COVID environment. And that's that's really not going to work out very well. One of my friends tried to have uh, a dinner over Zoom. You know, if you turn that into a little activity, it might work. Uh, it just depends on the people. But for the most part, like you can't, you know, sit down at a nice table and then order something and then have it come. That whole experience, it's the whole experience of going out to dinner. It's it's almost a ritual and you can't replicate that over Zoom. It's just not going to work out. Uh, um, like I said, if you can, you can make it into a little activity, which could be fun, especially if you're going on a Zoom date with somebody who also likes to cook or something like that. You can do like a little show and tell. But, you know, that's that's a very Zoom specific thing. And that's a very COVID environment type of um, situation trying like you're just not going to have dinner in a movie or zoom it's going to be really awkward it's going to make the interaction that much stranger than it already was and you know some people thrive off awkwardness maybe but you know it's just you're not this is not a good foundation for a relationship if you're doing something very strange and it just that is just not going to work 
Yeah, I'm personally a huge fan of walks. And that's probably been one of the things that I've like done most consistently during COVID is especially with those friends that are, you know, either themselves a little bit more cautious, or maybe they're um, living with individuals who are high risk, you know, will meet up outside, you know, sometimes even keep masks on and just go for a walk. And I feel like, you know, even in the colder weather, you know, if there's if there's someone you really like, it's totally worth it. Get bundled up, you know, walk around, look at Christmas lights. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what could what could be cuter than <laughs> picking up some coffee with somebody and just going for a walk in your in your big winter coat and um, scarves and everything like you're, that? You're pretty much just living out a Hallmark movie right there. So exactly, and you know what? Like, just embrace it. This is this is the world we live in right now. Be the Hallmark, be the Instagram, <laughs> just do it. And walks, you mentioned walks. Walks are a great way of interacting with people and it really diminishes the risk. I mean, if you spend that much time with somebody, if they're like full blown sneezing, snotting, um, coughing on you, like in outdoors, like you're okay. Being outdoors is going to, it's not going to be, it's not going to be preventative. But for everyone else, if you don't really know your own COVID status, if you're just going for a walk, that really diminishes any chance of possible transmission. And chances are you're not even infected anyway. So you can really diminish the risk to be to be outside, especially with a little breeze. Like it'll it'll blow it'll disperse the um, any respirations and decrease the um, potential viral load and really really kill the uh, the viral concentration in in the breath. Which would make it kind of safe to, um, you know, loop your arm around a waist or something like that, you know. Oh, that's wow. so romantic, Kevin. <laughs> uh, what about outdoor dining? Like, uh, if there's a place that has a patio, you know, those weird bubble things we've seen pop up or heaters, does that increase the risk? Doing outdoor dining might diminish the risk of um, transmitting disease. But what a lot of establishments end up doing is create an indoor environment outdoors, and so like those bubbles that you see, they're probably not extremely safe because you're still in a bubble with somebody else. And if that person is a stranger, you don't know their COVID status, then you're taking on that risk. But that having been said, like this is a person that you're going to eventually let into your life. And so you can take that risk. Like I said, lower your guard a little bit and let them in. And it should be like when you're when you're going to an outdoor dining establishment, then I think you're you're at that stage where you've introduce physical not physical contact necessarily but like um in-person uh dating which i think is another step in uh in covid dating you know you, you've moved beyond talking you move beyond hanging out or now now you move to hanging out i suppose this really gives you an opportunity i think when you're trying to do dating during covid you probably you pr should talk more and then go out less and what i mean by that is spend more time talking with people and then the people who seem like you're a good match with, then you can go out with that person. And then this is the person that you're letting, you're letting pass your guard. And then you can do the outdoor dining. That, that's fine too. But this also presents a really interesting opportunity that I can talk about in a second. But you can really get to know a person and then figure out the special things that you, the special interests that you share. And in doing so, you can really make that first date, that first real date, like I'm not talking about the Zoom date, the first in-person real date. You can make that a really special experience if you if you know something about the other person, that person knows something about you, and you share something um, you share something important. Kevin, I like that because I feel like it's it's looking at at the positive, the the glass half full instead of half empty. That we should use the craziness of dating during COVID as an opportunity to okay, how how do I actually be more intentional? 
about having, you know, good, rich conversation with someone so that that first meeting experience can be that much better. Yeah, definitely. And if you want, I can, t- I can tell you about how that how that worked out in my life. Yeah, please. We is want the personal the, story. Is this the Life Yourself Outlook story? Because I've been looking forward to asking that question this whole segment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I was just emailing with a girl. And that, that sort of took off. And then that's the person with whom this special story is based off of. So we we started emailing each other for, for some other reason, like, we didn't meet on Outlook, but you know, <laughs> we were we were emailing for another reason, and then we found out that we found we found like a little nugget. Like I just threw in a one liner at the end of one of my emails, and that little one liner became a whole conversation thread, and then all that together became this whole thing. And then, um, so as I was saying, we were able to really learn learn a lot about each other before that first date, that first in person date, and. Um, so she's she's Italian. I'm Vietnamese, and I've I've grown up with mostly mostly Asians in my life. And um, we're talking about cannolis, and the one cannoli I've had before um, before meeting her was at this Chinese supermarket, at the bakery at a Chinese supermarket. Which, um, if you know a good cannoli, then you know that they have the shell has to be freshly fried and freshly filled, and you have to eat it like pretty soon thereafter it's going to get soggy and then you're going to lose it and the the filling is um i think it's a ricotta ricotta cheese yeah yeah so that's a filling this this really nasty cannoli that had this chinese supermarket all the other all the other baked goods were really good but their um their their italian baked goods not so good it was filled with like frosting and it was this like weird cake batter thing it was it was really bad and then so I told her about that and she said, you know, this is, this can't go on. This, you cannot, that cannot be your impression of my people's dessert. <laughs> and so I told her, well, why don't you show me where a good cannoli is? And then from that, she's like, I'll do you one better. There's a good place with good cannolis, but around there, there's a good place for good cookies. There's a place for macarons, donuts, everything. And then, so as we were talking, we, we planned out this little dessert tour, uh, if you will. So fun. Yeah, we so we just parked in Georgetown and went from place to place picking up different desserts, and we brought it back and had coffee. And then, um, yeah, we just had a whole bunch of different desserts with coffee. Wow, that's so great! Like, yeah, that's all you can ask for on on a date, especially a first date. That's so yeah, that great. That was our first real date. That's awesome. I love that. That's <laughs> <laughs> so cute. Well, I hope things continue to go well for you guys. Uh, Kevin, before we let you go, though, I do want to ask, since we are only about two weeks away from Christmas, I just want to pivot and ask some practical advice. As so many of us, especially a lot of us young people, we live away from our families, we're traveling home. What should we be doing to make sure that as we go back home, we're keeping our families safe? The main thing that we need to do is just look at our own lives and what has been happening in our lives. You know, a lot of us are working from home these days, so you can you can practically isolate to a high degree uh, before traveling back home, and that's probably going to be a good idea. You know, if you're if you're going out meeting up meeting up with all your friends um, right before you travel, then you're you're increasing the risk and you're increasing the risk to your family as well. And so that that might be something that you you don't do I, that or you can go home and then meet up with your family, your cousins who are about your age, 
and maybe for your <clears throat> aunts and uncles, grandparents, maybe leave that to virtual if you're gonna if you're going to go out and do things before traveling. So it, it really depends on every individual person's life, what's going on in their lives, what they're doing. There are ways to there are ways to take precautions. You know, try to avoid crowded areas, wear your mask, uh, wash your hands, so on and so forth. But so the president today actually just said that he was he was working on making tests available without doctors. And if he means what I hope he means, then we may have at home rapid testing. If we can get that, then you'll be able to test before you travel, test after you've traveled and test a couple of days thereafter and really, uh, really make sure that you are negative before you go and see you know, your, your higher risk relatives. If that's going to be the case, great. Um, if not, then there are, there are testing that you can do. If you don't have to travel very far, then you can get tested after you, after you get tested, just isolate as much as you can and then travel and you should be okay. So there, there's a lot of ways, a lot of creative ways to diminish the amount of risk that you present to your relatives. Awesome. Well, Kevin, thank you. We really appreciate you coming on um, and chatting with us about how to date and stay safe during COVID. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Do you have an interest in public policy? Do you want to hear some of the biggest names in American politics speak? Every day, the Heritage Foundation hosts webinars called Heritage Events Live. Webinar topics range from ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic to the CARES Act and the economy. These webinars are free and open to the public. To find the latest webinars and register, visit heritage.org events. Now it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Mama, grandmother to J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy. So I'm so excited that this book is back in the news. In 2016, when it came out, I listened to the audiobook because, as I say all the time on this podcast, books are for nerds. And it really impacted me. And I think part of the reason was we were actually driving to Kentucky to do a documentary on a coal mine in Paintsville, and it just kind of aligned that this was in the news, and we had an eight-hour drive, and just to, to hear the book, and his story is so powerful growing up, and then see this town of Kentucky that was facing these same issues that J.D. Vance was talking about, poverty, drug use, you know, no real family support, but also see the good in the community, the people who were trying to beat the odds, and kind of the common heritage that really brought people together, it really is impactful and I think can teach all Americans something. But then the fact that this movie came out and Glenn Close started it and, you know, it, it really should be a, a big blockbuster because everybody's home. Everybody has Netflix, unfortunately. But, you know, the left is just really kind of quashed. And, and wanted to stifle this this movie that because they feel like it just represents right wing views and is like right wing propaganda. And I think like ugh, so sad that that has been uh, some of the yeah response to this film. Uh, I watched it on Friday night, and it really is incredibly well done. Uh, I I need to go back and now read the book. Um, 
because it so, so piqued my interest in uh, J.D. Vance's just incredible life and story. But I, you know, I, the my personal takeaway from it was so much so, uh, I think, just the incredible power that, you know, individuals are given to overcome incredibly challenging circumstances. And that looks different in everyone's life. We all face hardships. For J.D. Vance, that started essentially from the moment he was born, just being born into a family uh, that had a, a lot of issues and a lot of problems. And he really did have to fight really, really hard and against all odds for his dreams. And there's something about those stories that are so real and so raw, because at some level, whether an extreme uh, instance like it was for J.D. Vance or um, you know, just kind of for your average person, you know, we, we all have to do that. We all have to work through family issues. We all have to overcome obstacles. We all have to deal with things from our past. So I found it as emotional as the movie is, I found it to really be inspirational and it's just well done. I mean, the acting is on point. The shots are beautiful. Uh, they, they adapted the book so well into a screenplay it really is an excellent film. And Mama, who we named our problematic one of the week, is just uh, such an incredible, strong woman. And I think we all kind of have someone like that in our lives. And it's such a good reminder that for those individuals who are strong for us when we can't be, we owe so much to those people and they're worth celebrating. And I loved her flawed character. You know, she wasn't a good mother to her daughter, but she made it up later in her life by being a good matriarch to JD. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I think the the willingness that, you know, I, I think she realized that, you know, she realized that she'd fallen short with her daughter. And now with her grandkids, it was an opportunity. It was a second chance to make it right. And again, like such a, such a human experience. So like within that, this is sort of challenging and difficult, but there's also a lot of, a lot of beauty in that. And I encourage all of our listeners to stick around after the movie. They show, you know, the character from the movie and what they looked like in real life. And Glenn Close did such a good job playing Mama, and she actually wore Mama's real glasses throughout the movie. Hey, I didn't know that. Yeah. Fun fact. Yeah, very cool. All right. Well, now on to our Twitter question of the week. So last week we asked you all why so much of the mainstream media ignores the accomplishments of conservative leaders. And an overwhelming majority of you all responded that uh, they do so because it doesn't fit their narrative. Well, this week's Twitter question is, if the U.S. were to follow the U.K. and outlaw treatments often used to aid gender transitions, such as puberty blockers and other sex change hormones, at what age should those drugs be allowed to be prescribed? 16, 18, 21, or other comment below. You can find this poll on Virginia's Twitter page. And that is Virginia underscore Allen 5. And with that, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you do get your podcasts. 
It really does make a difference. Have a great week and Merry Christmas. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.